Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And we are back in the book of Revelation today. Yay! We took a short break to do a couple of one-offs, and then we took some time to look at Daniel chapters 2, 7, and 9, because they really do pertain to what we're going to be walking into in the book of Revelation. So this week, we will be looking at just the first five verses of Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to take some time after that to discuss what Dr. Gary Enrig referred to as Satanology, the study of Satan. That sounds really dark, but it's so important for us after being in Adventism to get a right view of Satan because we had such a wrong view of him and it colored our entire worldview. Oh, yes. So we're going to take a little time to talk about that. But before we get started, I want to know, Colleen, what was your view of Satan as an Adventist? I worried about him all the time. He was everywhere. As an Adventist, I believed that Satan was personally involved with tempting me, deceiving me. I don't know if I would have said he could read my thoughts, but I basically assumed he knew what I was thinking one way or another, that he had somehow access to my thoughts and could give me perverted thoughts, which was a sin of course, because I believed everything I did and everything I thought was a sin, pretty much. I do know the fact that I was taught the Bible from an Adventist perspective with all those Adventist children's books and Sabbath school lessons that came through a great controversy worldview. I believed that my entire life was wrapped up in Satan fighting for me against Jesus who wanted to get me away from him. You know, it's hard to explain, it's hard to say for sure how I thought this, but in some way, it felt to me like Satan had the advantage in that war, Mm. probably because I couldn't be good. Mm. So the fact that I could never be really good and never really obey my mom perfectly or have really nice thoughts about my sister all the time, I really felt like Satan was winning, and I really did believe as a kid into my teens that I would likely be lost. Mm. Satan had the edge over me, and I knew that Jesus was was the nicer guy and that he had died for me, whatever that meant, and I could never completely understand that. But I was having a hard time showing that I was lining up with Jesus, which was what I was supposed to do. You know, I was supposed to help him win this war over Satan by showing that by trusting Jesus, I could keep the law. And I wasn't doing a good job. So somehow Satan had the advantage over me, and I felt helpless to escape whatever it was he was doing to keep me locked into this disobedience I kept finding myself in, even though my head wanted to serve Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds so convoluted, it's so hard to talk about it, but it cost me so much sleep. As As a teenager, I would literally lie in my bed and not be able to go to sleep until two or three in the morning because I was worrying if I'd committed an unpardonable sin or if I had a sin I hadn't confessed. And I knew that Jesus was working hard for me, but Satan seemed to have me in his grip. So who was Mm. Satan to me? The winner of the war that I seemed to be the fallout of. Wow. How about you? Who was Satan to you? You know, when I thought about Satan definitely came from the Great Controversy worldview, and it colored how I thought of myself. So I believed that humans were born neutral, mm-hmm. and that if I sinned, when I sinned, it was Satan's fault. 
because he tempted me and he caused me to do that. So I felt like a perpetual victim of Satan. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I believed that he was omnipresent because Mm -hmm. I believed that, like you said, that he was personally involved in Mm -hmm. my life. All the sins, all the lies, all the confusion, all of the sadness I encountered, even from other people, it was all his personal attack on me. I think I had two different thoughts. I believed sometimes that he could read my thoughts, that Mm -hmm. he knew what I was thinking. Um, But then I think at some point along the way that shifted to, no, no, he can't hear my thoughts, but he has been here as long as we've been here. So he is a really good psychologist and he knows humans better than we know ourselves. You know that borderline message, I know you better than you know yourself. yeah. And you know, we were taught this confusion too. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure there's a quote somewhere. I'm not sure where this came from, but I did believe that he knew better than me. And so there were times when I would not pray out loud because I thought if I prayed out loud, then I gave him power. Uh Uh, And then there were other times where I thought I had, as a Christian, I had to own the power I had over Satan if I used the name Jesus. Yes, I remember that too. That was like a magic word, Uh which was kind of funny when we were in Acts and we read about the people who tried to cast demons out in the name of Jesus. And they said, Paul, we know, who are you? And they beat him up. (laughs) So yeah, I I had attributed divine attributes to Satan. I think I believed that God was going to ultimately win, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know what kind of casualty would come from that. I didn't know, you know, and I, I certainly didn't know where I was going to land in any of it at the end of the day. But I know anytime I felt afraid, I believed Satan was present with me and he was causing me to feel that, which would escalate it. It was dark. We had really dark ideas about him. And you know, like you, I think I did believe God would ultimately win, but I kind of figured I would be part of the casualties of the war. Oh, of course, because, you know, we couldn't keep that law. And what a well-crafted tale. Well, if you can't keep the law, that means God's not fair. That's right. Well, we can't keep the law. So if we're going to believe that worldview, then God's not fair. And there was Jesus who managed to keep the law, and he was fully human and had no advantage I didn't have, so I was taught. And he was just an irritating good guy. Like, really? I'm supposed to believe now that he is going to give me help to do what he did? It just never worked. Well, and especially when you consider the fact that your own angels won't stay by your side if you are sinning. So there's a lot of like human pathology in our ideas of the supernatural. We had a different God, a different gospel, a different Jesus. We even had a different Satan. Yeah, we did. The entire scenario. And thank you, Ellen, for that great controversy worldview, (laughs) because that's kind of where it all came from. Mm -hmm. She really talked way more about Satan than she did about Jesus. She did. She even described his thoughts and his feelings during her pre-creation period. She even knew what he looked like physically, you know, never mind the fact that angels are spirits, but she knew that Satan had a particular physical appearance with a sloping forehead, which, by the way, was such a profound impact on many loyal Adventists that when my husband Richard was born a month early and came out of the birth canal with a little cone-shaped head, his mother looked at him and said he had Satan's forehead. Yeah. So it was a very pervasive teaching, 
Satan dominated us as Adventists. And here we are looking at Revelation 12, where we're going to meet the most symbolic passages of the whole New Testament, of the whole Bible, perhaps. But this is the most symbolic passage that we're beginning today in the book of Revelation. And we're going to meet Satan as a dragon. We're going to meet a woman, and we're going to meet a child that she's giving birth to. And we're going to talk our way through this. But let's read Revelation 12, 1 to 5, before we get started. Okay. And by the way, shall we just mention that we've changed our version of the Bible, just beginning now, just because we decided to? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've decided to go with uh, the LSB, which is basically an upgrade of the NASB, with some adjustments that allow for the true rendering of the original language. And the LSB stands for the Legacy Standard Bible. And one of the things I especially like about this version is that wherever the Hebrew or the Greek uses the word for the name of God, which is written in English as all capitals for Lord, this Bible uses the name Yahweh, which is what it really stands for. Okay. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child." And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What do we have here, Nikki? We have a great sign in heaven. And the first sign is the woman with the crown of stars, with the sun being her clothing and the moon under her feet. And she's about to give birth. She's in labor. What can we say about this? Well, it was interesting to hear Gary Enrich talk about the word for sign. He said that when John uses the word sign, it speaks of miracles, but it speaks of miracles that have more meaning than just what we're seeing. So he likened it to a sign that says the name of a city. He said the sign itself is not the city. It's pointing to something. And so these signs that John writes about are pointing to something much bigger with a lot of content behind it. This is an event that has more than its apparent significance. The sign is a woman and she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, like you mentioned, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And he pointed out how these symbols take us in a way back to Joseph. So let's talk about how this connects us to Joseph. And then let's talk about some of the ways this sign has been interpreted through the years within Christianity. What is the significance of sun, moon, and stars with Joseph. Well, in his dream, the sun was Jacob, the moon was his mother, and the stars were his brothers. Right. And that is actually a dream that is recorded in Genesis 37, 9. It was all in one verse, very succinct, and this is what it said. Then he, meaning Joseph, had still another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, Behold, 
I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. (laughs) Can you imagine how his brothers felt hearing this little squirt say, y'all are going to bow down to me? (laughs) Now, in terms of Joseph's dream, you had already mentioned that the sun represented Jacob, his father, the moon represented Rachel, his mother. And that the 11 stars that bowed down to Joseph were his 11 brothers. So, with that in the back of our mind, let's think about what this sign might mean. And it's fascinating to me that there have been at least three different major interpretations of what this woman stands for. We have one that has been around for many centuries, and it is essentially what we might call the Catholic interpretation. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, they would say that this woman pictures Mary, and they refer to her as the Queen of Heaven. But there's a problem with this, because this woman, according to Revelation, is still present at the end of the age. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is with him right now. Yes, she died, and she is with the Lord. Um, Another thing that I thought was really an interesting point is that this particular interpretation of the woman representing Mary, the Queen of Heaven, actually didn't come into existence until about the 6th century, when the Roman Church was very young. The important part about that is that the very early Church, after Jesus ascended in those first five or six centuries, did not understand this sign that way. This interpretation had not yet come into existence. This is largely a Catholic understanding of this sign. So, what's another major interpretation of this sign? Well, another one, it would be that the woman represents the church. But the issue that we find there is you have the woman giving birth to the Messiah, and the church doesn't give birth to the Messiah. In a sense, the Messiah gives birth to the church. Yes. So it's a backwards symbol, if you think of it that way. I do have to throw in here that this view of the symbol being the church is what Ellen White apparently borrowed or picked up on, because I grew up hearing that this woman represented the church, and I looked for some sources and found a couple I'm going to share. One is from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. It's from page 27. And Ellen says this, Revelation 12, 17 has been referred to as a prophecy that the gifts would be restored in the last days. An examination of its testimony will confirm this view. The text speaks of the remnant of the woman's seed. The woman being a symbol of the church, her seed would be the individual members composing the church at any one time, and the remnant of her seed would be the last generation of Christians, or those living on the earth at the second coming of Christ. The text further declares that these, quote, keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the testimony of Jesus is explained in chapter 19.10 to be the spirit of prophecy, which must be understood as that which among the gifts is called the gift of prophecy. Do you see where she's going with this? Yeah, this is like their Daniel math. (laughs) (laughs) This is is a connect the dots back to us. Exactly. So she's saying that the woman represents the church and her seed, which we'll read about as we go on, is the last generation, which I want to say 
From an Adventist perspective, last generation theology is very specific because Ellen White said the last generation alive on the earth when Jesus came would be the ones who were perfectly, absolutely perfectly keeping the law, including the fourth commandment, that their characters would be perfectly reflecting the character of Christ. So there's a lot hidden in here, plus the fact that she throws in the Adventist interpretation of the spirit of prophecy being her gifts. There's one more shorter one that comes from early writings, which preceded Patriarchs and Prophets. It's a shorter quote, but I'll just read it. This remnant, referring, of course, to the remnant of this woman's seed, existing amid the signs and wonders that usher in the great and terrible day of the Lord, is doubtless the remnant of the seed of the woman spoken of in Revelation 12, the last generation of the church on earth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. All to say, she focuses a lot on that remnant of the seed, but the woman has to be the church in her interpretation. So Adventists everywhere have understood Revelation 12 and the sign of the woman to be the church, primarily pointing like a funnel right towards them. So how do they do this and use Revelation 12 as a proof text for pre-creation history in the war in heaven? Because the war in heaven starts in verse 7. Yes, it's true. And you know, I'll confess, I don't know exactly how they did that seamlessly, but I do remember learning that the baby did represent the Messiah. And the way I I believe I understood it as an Adventist was that they actually interpreted Old Testament Israel to be the Old Testament church, so that the church today is the continuation of Israel, and that is, in general terms, the church. So the church brings forth the Messiah and then the dragon. But they would also say that all of the events of Revelation are out of order. Oh, of course. So that what we read here isn't necessarily preceding what comes after it. It could be just a hodgepodge, and you have to figure out through some sort of Adventist magic what comes first. Yeah. So back to our sign in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, we have a woman. She's about to give birth, and we've shown that one of the interpretations of this woman is that she is the church— But we've also seen that the problem with that is that the church actually doesn't give birth to the Messiah. And we are now coming up to the third interpretation that's often assigned to the woman. So that would be that the woman represents the righteous remnant of Old Testament Israel. This would be the Messianic community or ethnic Israel. And Pastor Gary pointed us to Isaiah chapter 26, beginning in verse 16, where we see an example where Israel is described as being in labor for the Messiah. It says, O Yahweh, they visited you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the woman with child draws near to the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her pangs of labor. Thus we were before you, Yahweh. We were with child. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish salvation for the earth. So it sounds like they're lamenting that they couldn't bring forth the Messiah on their own. We see that as far back as Isaiah, centuries before John receives his vision, we have images in prophecy that foretell the coming forth of the Messiah from Israel. And 
You know, I have to say, Nikki, that one of the things that's been kind of interesting to me, and it's a little disturbing to think about it, that is that I've recently become aware that there is an kind of like a growing sense among many people in Christianity that the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are not that clear, that they're just not completely clear, and that people are reading into the Old Testament a messianic sense. And I want to say, that's not how I see it when I read the Old Testament. Now, I'll grant you I'm not a scholar, I'm not a linguist, but I have the Bible and I can read the words and I can and I can follow cross-references too if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what I see. I see there are very clear things in the Old Testament that tell us a Messiah is coming and they tell us where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And this passage you just read from Isaiah is one of those where Israel understands that a Messiah is coming. Here in Revelation, we have John seeing a sign of a woman dressed in the sun with the moon under her feet, with the 12 stars on her head, the 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. If we go back to Joseph's dream and we apply the meaning of Joseph's dream and apply it to the stars, sun, and moon here, we see that the identification of Israel is clear. And Israel is the one who's bringing forth the Messiah. And that was part of prophecies all through the Old Testament. It was, and it was something that the Jews during the time of the Messiah were aware of. It was a common phrase to say something of the birth pains of the Messiah, which is interesting too, isn't it? Because it we is. have in the New Testament that like labor pains, you know, the, the last days will come upon us. Yes. It's kind of fascinating, actually, that that's been a figure of speech mm-hmm. related to the coming of the Messiah, either the first coming or the second. Yeah. You know, I loved this little succinct summary by J. Vernon McGee. He says, the woman is a sign in heaven, although her career is here on earth. She is not a literal woman. She is a symbol. The career of the woman corresponds to that of Israel, for it is Israel that gave birth to Christ, who is the child. And I just thought he summarized that so nicely. She's a symbol. John sees a symbol. He's not seeing a real woman. But she corresponds to the woman on earth. In a sense, as our pastor even mentioned when he taught through this chapter, he even mentioned that in a sense, we could say there's a way in which she represents Mary, but Mary was within Israel. She was the one that was promised that was going to come, that was going to give birth to a child. And the bigger picture here is that this is Israel. The way she's dressed, the tribes of stars on her head, we see that this is representing Israel, not the church. And the church does not give birth to the Messiah. And I think that's a really important thing. And we have to be able to say, the words are showing us what we have to see. The woman is giving birth to a child. That's Israel. And the remnant of her seed will include the Messianic community. It will include Israel. But it is not the church who gives birth to the Messiah. Let's go on here to verse 3, where we see the second sign. The first was the woman giving birth to a child, and then in verse 3, John sees another sign in heaven. And what's this one? And what are we to understand? Well, first of all, he says another sign. He doesn't say a great sign, which is interesting. Yeah. This is a great red dragon. So when we think about a red dragon, 
red obviously conjures up the idea of blood, murder, violence, Mm -hmm. wickedness. And dragon is an interesting one because the Old Testament uses this image to talk about the enemies of God. The Old Testament refers to Egypt and Babylon as a dragon. The dragon is a picture that was used by the ancient Near East to speak of the forces of evil and of chaos. So nearly all the nations around Israel would have had this in mind when they heard about a red dragon. It was a great creature with a great capacity for evil and with a supernatural force or power behind it. This was common in their way of thinking. Yes. And importantly, while John is using language that would have been well known in the ancient world, he himself is not picking up this language from the pagan traditions, Mm -mm. but from the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. where Leviathan is the name used of the evil creature opposed to God, a dragon-like creature that lived in the sea. We're to see this dragon that John sees as having supernatural force, supernatural power, and a dreadfully cruel, destructive character. Gary said that the Old Testament also refers to behemoth and Rahab, which is the monster that embodies a monster opposed to God and his authority. What we're seeing here is powerful imagery that people who were aware of the Old Testament would have understood instantly. And you know, it's interesting to me, Nikki, just speaking of this, that There is so little awareness of biblical language these days. When I was a kid back in the Dark Ages, (laughs) there were a lot of biblical allusions that were used that people knew were from the Bible, just in common speech. And today, some of those allusions just are lost. Even the idea of dragon or serpent, that was a really common figure of speech. How many people are sort of revulsed by the image of a snake crossing their path? I mean, there's a reason that this is an evocative image, and it's kind of rooted in the Old Testament, but people don't even understand those things anymore. So when John wrote this, people did understand the Old Testament. His audience would have understood, and they knew he was describing an enemy of God about to devour something that was actually from heaven, because this woman was clothed in the sun with the stars, an image in the heavens, and this child was coming, and this creature was going to devour the child. It's interesting that this dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. It really does take you back to Daniel, doesn't it? It it does. And that's one of the reasons we went back there for the last three weeks to review those beasts. There's a similarity even here. The pattern of 10 and 7 for heads, horns, and crowns echoes Daniel. In some places, the numbers of horns vary a little from 7 to 10 or from 10 to 7. And in chapter 13, verse 1, where we meet the beast out of the sea, we're going to meet a beast with 10 heads and 7 diadems and blasphemous names. The dragon of 12.3 has 7 heads and 10 horns. So you see those Numbers are reversed, but the symbolism is still there. There's a similarity between the beast of Revelation 13, this dragon, and the beast of Daniel 7. So the beast of chapter 13 is similar to the dragon because both the beast 
and the nation it comes from. And the horn, the Antichrist, are empowered and controlled by Satan. So Satan is the power behind this dragon. So what does the dragon do? We see in verse 4 that his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. This beast was bent on getting that child. Yeah. Let's deal with that tail and the stars. I learned as an Adventist that this image and the, the subsequent war in heaven that the rest of the chapter will start to talk about told us that there was the pre-creation story of Satan rebelling, taking out a third of the angels to follow him, and establishing the great controversy because he was so jealous that Jesus had been exalted to the position of son. So coming out of Adventism into Christianity, I've come to see that Revelation 12 is not telling us a pre-creation story. It's not telling us that everything that happens here happened before creation. But this idea of the red dragon waiting for the child that his tail had, past tense, taken out a third of the stars and cast them to earth, I think we can see that as having some allusion to Satan's fall, of which we're not told much. We're really not told much. And it's fascinating to me that while Ellen spoke richly and frequently and in detail about Satan, the Bible doesn't. Mm -mm. The Bible doesn't tell us the angel's stories. It doesn't tell us Satan's story, but it gives us a few hints. And this dragon, having taken out a third of the stars, likely refers to what happened in the past. But it's not establishing a war in heaven where he's fighting Jesus. Or the motivation for it. We do know, though, that Satan, according to Scripture in Second Peter and in Jude, that he is the commander of an angelic host of beings who are fallen. And so, you know, you might assume that the third of the stars that were swept from heaven is that exactly. angelic host. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a fair understanding of this particular passage in this verse. But that's not the whole thing that the verse says. That tail sweeping away the third of the stars is past tense. His tail swept away and threw them to the earth. But then we come to the next section, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, that's not saying he did that. That's saying the position he was taking in John's vision. And that that was what he was hoping to do. Mm -hmm. But then in verse 5, we see what actually happens. What happens in verse 5? Well, she gave birth to the son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Talk us through the tenses, Nikki. Well, the tenses are fascinating to me. So she gave birth to a son, male child. We know this is Messiah who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There's future tense there. Mm -hmm. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Past That's tense. past tense. So we're seeing the birth of Christ and then the ascension of Christ. Yes. There's a lot left out between those two. But we know that the result of all that is that he is Messiah who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That is, again, taking us back to Psalm 2. That's right. And that has not happened yet. Mm -mm. That is still to come. 
So the child was born. The dragon was denied what he wanted. He was denied the ability to kill this child. The child was caught up to heaven where we know Jesus is. And he is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Satan was completely thwarted in his intention to destroy Messiah. There were several times throughout Israel's history where the dragon or Satan tried to eliminate the Messiah by one means or another, by wiping out the line of David from the tribe of Judah, by whatever means he could. There was one instance when the evil queen mother, Athaliah, for example, tried to kill all the children of the line of David, deliberately trying to wipe out the royal line. And one child escaped her murderous vengeance. And that was because this little baby was hidden by his nurse and this child's name was Jehoash. He grew up and became the king of Israel. There were many instances like that periodically throughout the history of Israel where evil tried to stop the royal line so that the Messiah couldn't come as prophesied from the line of Judah. So in one sense, the woman is Mary because she actually gave birth to the Messiah. But in another sense, she is Israel as well. And sometimes through the history of Israel, Satan was just one baby away from eliminating the royal line. But God protected the holy seed so that the Messiah could come in the way God had said he would come. And once again, these prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah that began back in Genesis when Jacob blessed his sons before his death and said that a royal scepter would not depart from Judah until the one to whom it was due would come, beginning with that, clear till the birth of Messiah, the expectation was that someone was coming, a Messiah was coming, and Satan was continually trying to stop that. And in this sign that John sees, we see this illustrated in the heavens with a very specific time of the birth of the child. And what was it that Satan tried to do when the child was born? Well, he tried to take out all of the babies that had been born around that same time. Isn't it interesting that God impressed Joseph to wake up Mary, take the child, and go to Egypt of all places, (laughs) to Egypt, which is sometimes called the womb of Israel because God used Egypt Mm -hmm. to nurture and protect his people at various times. And then we find the application of the phrase, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So yes, even at the birth of the child, there was an attempt to kill all the babies so he could not live, but God protected him. So in this passage, Gary pointed out that there are six titles that are given to Satan. The first one that we've talked about is the great red dragon, and it's used 13 times in the book of Revelation and only used in this book and always used of Satan. So the second title is the ancient serpent, which brings our mind back to Genesis chapter three. Mm -hmm. Also, he is referred to as the devil, which means Diablos. The word in Greek is Diablos, and it means the opponent or the opposer. Basically, if God is for it, he's against it. It's the instinctive opponent of God. The fourth title is Satan, which means adversary. We see this word used in Job. It's used in First Chronicles 21 when Satan roused David to number the children of Israel. And it's also used in Zechariah chapter 3. 
The fifth title is the deceiver of the whole world. This is a common theme in the New Testament. His main goal is to deceive us about God's truth. And the last title mentioned is the accuser of our brothers. This was interesting. Gary pointed out that this is usually misunderstood. This is not subjective accusations like we were talking about where he follows us around and he's just beating us down all the time. This is him accusing the brothers objectively before God. They're not worthy of your blessings. See him break your law. Yes. This is actually a legal term used when talking about what's going on in a courtroom. So this is Satan standing before God, and we see him doing this with Job and with Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. So as Gary talked to us about what, again, I mentioned earlier, he referred to as Satanology, he talked about the personhood of Satan. He said that Satan is an actual being. He's not a personification or a symbol. He appears in seven books, and he's mentioned by name by Every New Testament writer, not in every book, but by every writer. And of the 28 times his name is used in the Gospels, 25 of them are used by the Lord Jesus, which ought to cause us to sit up and pay attention. If Jesus talks about Satan, then he is real. And you know, that's one of the things that I have learned since coming out of Adventism. What Jesus said and did during his ministry tells us so much about the reliability of the Old Testament He quotes the Old Testament. He refers to the Old Testament. He speaks what is true. He did not speak to us in riddles and symbols and allegories unless it was very clear that's what he was doing. I'll never forget the time when early in our history with former Adventist Fellowship, we invited Pastor Gary to come and talk to our fellowship group on a Friday night. And I remember him saying, Jesus would not use an untruth to teach a truth. That was a turning point in my mind, and I realized that I had to take the words of Jesus very seriously, not just of Jesus, but of the whole Bible. When we have God's Word in front of us, those words tell us the truth. So when Jesus talks about Satan, we have to take it seriously. He's not speaking of a folk myth. No. And in fact, Gary pointed out that Satan is a personal being and that a person is defined intellectually as someone who has intellect, emotion, and will. And we can see all three of those in this chapter in Revelation 12. We see Satan showing emotion when he's thrown from heaven in great rage. We see his will as he initiates war. And we see his intellect in scripture where it talks about the schemes of the devil. We also see that Satan is a created being. And we can tell this because in various places in the New Testament and the Old, we're told that Jesus is the Creator and that all things are made by Him. For example, Colossians 1, all things are made by Him, all things are made for Him. John 1, nothing was made that was not made by Him. That includes Satan. Lucifer, the angel that is known as Satan today, was a created being. That means Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent. He's exalted because he's an angel, but he is created. We do not live in a dualistic universe. We have God the creator and we have creatures, and Satan is a creature. And it's really important to me to remember, Satan is not God's rival, He is God's enemy. Mm -hmm. A rival suggests equality. And in 
the great controversy worldview that we grew up with, Nikki, he was a rival. Mm -hmm. He is in a great controversy with Jesus over our souls, and we have to determine which one of them will claim us. We decide if Satan or Jesus gets us, and we help Jesus win if we choose Jesus. That's a rival. That's not who Satan is. Satan is a spiritual being. We see that in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's a powerful being. We see that in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we see that Satan is an evil being. Jesus said in John 17, 15, as he was praying to the Father before going to the cross, he said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And in 1 John 5, 18 and 19, we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the question that remains then is if Satan is a created being and he is an evil being at this point, what happened to him? Because did God create the devil or did he fall? And you know, like we said earlier, there's not a lot said in the Bible about what happened, but we're given a few hints. One of the most compelling to me when I heard it taught is that in 1 Timothy 3, we read the qualifications for elders in the church. And one of the things it says is this. This is in 1 Timothy 3, verses 2, 5, and 6. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, an elder can fall into the sin that was Satan's sin of conceit, and then thus the condemnation that the devil received. This is probably the most direct passage in Scripture describing Satan's fall. There are two others in the Old Testament that are ostensibly describing, first, the king of Tyre, and second, the king of Babylon. The first one is in Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19, and the second one is in Isaiah 14, 13 to 23. Now, it's interesting because in both of these cases, the prophets are describing wicked kings and their characteristics, but somewhere into the description of these kings, they move into things that clearly are beyond human. For example, in Ezekiel, we start reading, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, and so on. And we think, this is not just talking about a human. This is talking about something behind the human, something that drove that human to be cruel, wicked, and evil. So while it's not completely direct, we have these three passages that help us understand 
something happened to Lucifer, who became Satan, but he is the avowed enemy of God. And I think that is the thing that we need to remember. Satan is God's enemy, but God is the protector of his own people. I love some of the things that Gary said about this. He said, pride is itself insanity. He said, you're only proud when you measure yourself by yourself and you lose touch with reality. And that's really what it appears Satan did. His whole existence is based on self-deception. I mean, he knows the scriptures Mm -hmm. and yet he still plans to rise up against God, even though we have the book of Revelation. Right. He knows how it's going to end and yet he is going to cause all of the nations to march against the Messiah in the end. I love that Gary said that rebellion against God is culpable insanity. I loved that word, culpable. Yes. And that actually is something that we have to think of too, because we can't blame the devil for our sin. We are born in sin. As you pointed out earlier in Ephesians 2, we're born dead in sin by nature, objects of wrath. We have to be made alive by being transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son through belief in the Lord Jesus. We sin because we are born sinners. And by contrast, our Lord Jesus, who came in human flesh, was not a sinner. He was not spiritually dead. He came spiritually alive and did not sin because he was not a sinner. So we need a savior. And we can't blame Satan for our condition. Satan is a creature who will receive his justice from God, and we are creatures who will receive our justice from God. And God has provided a way of escape from our natural condition of spiritual death. He has sent his son in human flesh to do what we couldn't do, to take our sin on himself and to die and pay our penalty on the cross. He disarmed Satan when he died on the cross. We learn that in Colossians 2.14. He destroyed the curse of the law that was against us. And when he was buried, paying our debt of death, and when he was raised again on the third day because his sacrifice was sufficient for our sin, when we trust that, we are made alive. We're not subject any longer to the accusations of the devil, who is our accuser. We are God's children when we trust Jesus. And when we trust him and believe, we pass from death to life. And God forgives our sin, and he imputes to us the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus. We're not doomed to be the subjects of Satan. We are God's And he has the last word. And just as this passage in Revelation shows us that God protected that child, he protected that child for our sake so that he could take our sin and bring us to eternal life. And if you haven't trusted that child who grew up and became our perfect sacrifice, this is the time to do it. Trust him and thank him for being our God and for being our Savior. And join us next week as we continue our walk through Revelation chapter 12. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Music